And now we're going to read God's word. Uh, Please stand. This is from Revelation 21, uh, 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the land. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and thanks to the O'Hearns for the plug for the retreat. Uh, you all probably also feeling just a great rest. After we did the Nehemiah series, these passages must feel like you blink and the sermon text is over. Uh, so <laughs> we're trying to give some variety and pacing to our, our text. But I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, you might notice something a little different on the stage. We have green now for our liturgical colors. We've moved into a new season, which is just the season following Epiphany. It's called Ordinary Time. Uh, and green is meant to symbolize life and hope. And we change these colors to help remind ourselves that God is on the move throughout the year. It can feel like life is stagnant, like we're still going through the same things. And sometimes even just small cues help us remember that God is present, that God is doing things even when we feel like we ourselves may be standing still. And on that note of green signifying hope, I want to share something that was actually deeply encouraging uh, to me this week, which is I was notified that someone uh, gave an anonymous gift of $100,000 towards the repair of the building this week. Right. Let's... So that's amazing news. Praise God for that. Uh, Praise God for working, even when we feel like he may not be, when we're not expecting uh, provision like that. So just a cue to remind ourselves that God works in still mysterious and generous ways. And a deep thank you uh, to whoever may have given uh, that generous gift in support of the church. And we're very grateful for that. Uh, We are in week three of a five-part series uh, in these last chapters of Revelation 21 and 22 that we've been calling All Things New. Uh, We're focusing here on Scripture's very last chapters, on the very end of the whole biblical story. What all Scripture is driving towards is these last two chapters. And what we see there is a vision. Actually, all of Revelation really is about John's vision culminating in these last chapters of a new heaven and a new earth, of the new city and dwelling place of God with his people. And this is part of actually the beauty of Christianity is the value that it places on creation. We don't have this sense as Christians that just just the spiritual is what's important, that you should get away from the body that's not significant, that our earth is not significant, it's going to pass away, that in some sense, yes, it will pass away, but we see Revelation giving us a sense of a deeper meaning, a greater importance to creation, that God meant for it not to be broken, but that he means for it to be made new. 
And so as we look at this, I want to give us just a sense of the depths of Christianity's care for the world and for being human and for us to think about these things and the hope that they give us that we ourselves, our world, might also be made new. That as we think about this future where all these things are made new, that we might start to borrow from that future for our present and have ourselves made new as well. And this morning, we're adding to that picture of a new reality by seeing through John's vision, this this vision of the new city of God, the new Jerusalem, and the true beauty and hope that it offers us when we really start to see what's there. And so I want to unpack a bit what John is showing us, what these things convey to us in this text this morning by looking at which city survives in verse 9, what that city is like in verses 9 through 13, and then the names on the city in verses 12 and 14. So which city survives, what it's like, and the names on that city. But before we do that, would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Let's ask God to meet us in our time together today. God, we thank you that you are good, that you created us good, that you made for things to be good. We acknowledge, God, that we have gone off track. Any of us have gone off track. I've gone off track this week. We need your grace to bring us back, to make us new, to make our relationships new, to heal what's, what's fractured in our hearts, to heal the ways that we are angry or afraid, lonely, fearful, disappointed. God, you know where each of our hearts are this morning, and you know that our hearts are wandering until we find you. So would you be found to us this morning? Would you find us here through this text, through this picture of a new city, of a new dwelling with you and your people together, the promise of that hope, God, would that anchor deeply in our hearts that we might not feel maybe as alone as we might have felt coming in this door in some way. So I pray that you would meet us now by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to go back through the text a little bit together uh, this morning. But beginning in verse 9, I want us to look at which city survives. And you might say, I only see one city. What are you talking about? We're going to point that out here in just a second. Because verse 9 says that John has shown this new city by someone, right? It says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of wrath, those final seven plagues that God sent upon the evil of humanity. It's actually a parallel reference if you were to go back to Revelation 17 of when one of the angels shows John not this city Jerusalem but the city Babylon. And in that vision starting in chapter 17 is the unveiling of all that God will do against what is unjust and wrong in our world. So it's a picture of what God would do to what is wrong symbolized by that one city of Babylon. And what follows in those chapters is the complete dismantling of all that's broken in our world. But here, the angel shows John a different city. There's two cities that were shown. One that gets judgment and falls as you want it to fall when you see what it's truly like in Revelation 17, and one that descends and stays in the new Jerusalem. 
And throughout the book, there have been these two rival kingdoms. We talked about this a bit last week, that there are two ways of life that have been at war with one another throughout all time that Revelation pictures as Babylon and Jerusalem, the way of walking away from God into nothing and the way of walking towards God into life. And for much of the book, it does not seem like walking towards God has been going particularly well. And the reality is through much of Scripture, it doesn't feel like walking towards God is going particularly well for humanity. It feels like things are getting worse and not better. It feels like Babylon is winning, like the real danger continues. Yet here in the end, we're shown not Babylon succeeding, not Babylon excelling and pushing past all the hope that we have, but actually the kingdom of light and love and patience and goodness is the kingdom that descends and endures. So the angel showing John this picture calls to mind that one city survives and one city doesn't. And the one that survives, if you've been reading Revelation up to this point, which we skipped ahead here, but if you went back and read, the one that survives may not be the one that you would expect you would see the continual bearing down on the church of Babylon and all these forces, and you would not feel like if you're reading this for the first time that you would expect it to go all that well in the end. But this passage reveals that in the kingdom of God, appearances do not determine outcomes. I want to say that again. Revelation wants you to know that, that appearances in the kingdom of God do not determine outcomes outcomes. This is true so many times in Scripture, that the way things seemed is not the way that they turned out. This was true in the life of Joseph, sold into slavery, suffering in prison in Egypt. It seemed like the way things were going would not be for good. But in the end, after it all, Joseph goes through it all, rises through that, through God's redemption, and says in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, what was the appearance was not the outcome. Much more so than that, we see this ultimately at the cross, what seemed like Jesus' greatest defeat. His ministry had all these miracles, this great following, and in the end, what happens? It's loneliness, brutality, and execution in front of everyone. It seems like the low point. It seems like the end of Jesus' ministry, not its greatest moment, when it was actually his greatest triumph. By putting our sin and death to death in himself. The appearance of the cross was death, but the reality was life. The outcome was redemption. We would have seen the cross if we were standing there like the other disciples and thought, this is it. This is the end. But appearances in the kingdom of God do not determine outcomes. What we see is not how always, not always how things will go in our lives. In the end, the place of peace and wholeness, the place that endures, is a place with God. The place of God's power over all things in our life. He is the one who is in control. This is the promise of revelation that what you see does not dictate what God will do in the end for you. The way your life is today is not necessarily how it will end. 
the difficulties in your life, the conflicts in your life, the brokenness on the inside, what you see does not determine what God will do in the end for those he calls his own. Amen? So whatever you are facing right now, just because it looks ugly, does not mean that's how this is going to end. Just because it tears you apart does not mean that you won't rise in glory because the church is tearing apart, being torn apart throughout Revelation. It is being persecuted throughout the history of the church and even now around the world. And in the end, it is the new city of God that descends, that lasts. Appearances do not determine outcomes in God's kingdom. That's one takeaway that we can see in this city coming down is that appearances do not determine outcomes. God will have the final say in the end, and it will be grace. But what is this city like then that descends, a city that we wouldn't expect to have the final word. We'll look at verses 9 through 13 here, and we can see a number of things, and there's more than we can get to. But I want to look at just four of them that I think are particularly important. The ways the city is described. It's described as glorious, as safe, as accessible, and as a bride. So first, glorious Verse 11, we see this. It's described as glorious and radiant. It's a city that is radiating with the glory of God like a crystal shining in the light. We don't know exactly what Jasper was at that time, but something like crystal seems to be the point. If you've seen crystal in a display case with light, it's brilliant, it's beautiful, it's reflective. You're seeing the city come down with a glory that is just beautiful. And it also calls to mind, because it says it's filled with the glory of God, the picture of when God's glory came down on the temple in the Old Testament or on Mount Sinai, which was, which was a picture of an immensity, of an overwhelming presence coming down, a presence that you couldn't actually get very close to, that it was too much to handle in some sense. It's the kind of presence that in Exodus, when it made contact, with Mount Sinai. Scripture says it made the mountain burn and smoke. It was on fire, it seemed. And yet that very same presence, when it's in the new city of God, is not fire and smoke. It is light. It's shining with brilliance. It suggests that something has changed between the old heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth. Now there is nothing for the glory to bump into, so to speak. There's nothing getting in the way that would make it smoke, that would make it burn. It is just simply light. There is nothing standing between you and the glory of God in the new city. It means it's a city then without darkness, without brokenness, without anything getting in the way. It's just good. It's just light. And that's really comforting to know because even when we're little kids and even when we're grown, we feel better when the lights are on at night. Right? You just feel a little bit better. Maybe if you want to go to sleep, you feel much better if someone would just turn the light off. But when you, when you want to be able to know what's going on, you feel better when the dark isn't there, 
when we can see what's going on. It helps us not be afraid. And yet here is Revelation showing us a picture of a city where there is no dark. There is nothing hiding, nothing that you'll be afraid of that you can't see around the corner, no part of the city that you are afraid to go into, no place where things are broken and being hidden from you that will later come to light and be crushing. Everything is light. Everything is right. There is nothing in the way between you and God's glory. Imagine that just for a minute. Nothing being in the way between you and God. Relatedly, I think verse 12 shows us that if we imagine such a place with nothing in the way, the walls are also showing us that that it is a place where we can be safe with God. It's describing a city with great and high walls. And city walls were, as we talked about in the Nehemiah series, essential for the stability and protection of a city. For life to go on in the ancient world, you had to have walls around the city. And here we see high walls, which in addition to last week's passage where where verse 8 talked about those who had formerly threatened or killed or tried to lead astray the people of God, that, that those would be kept out from this new city, this new heaven and earth, that in addition to that, these high walls suggest, <coughs> excuse me, that this is finally a place of safety. You're no longer going to be threatened. You're no longer going to be persecuted. You're no longer going to be tempted from the outside. High walls show a city where challenges are gone and you can simply rest and be safe and not have to worry anymore. Imagine a place like that. Imagine if our city was like that. And imagine also not just a city that is safe and glorious, but a city that is actually accessible to everyone. Verses 12 and 13 show a city with 12 gates, three facing the east, the north, the south, and the west. In other words, the gates of the city point in absolutely every direction. And commentators show that this points out that there was, there was no direction that the city would not open onto. There was no one who would have restricted access to this place. That the intention was that the doors of heaven, the doors of the new city of God, open to every people, every tribe, every nation and tongue. That there is no way that you could walk that it would not be accessible to you. That there is no background that you could have that it would not reach out to you. That there is no place you could find yourself that the doors would not be pointing and open towards you. It's a city that's ready to receive anyone who would call on Jesus. You would expect in a city with high walls, a city that is putting a price on safety for there maybe to only be one gate, one door, one way in and one way out so that you can control. And yet there is something about the safety of this place that does not require it to be paranoid, that does not require it to be worried, but that lets it be open and free, that it is somehow both safe and accessible. 
It's not closed off. It's a place ready to welcome you into the glory, the radiance, the presence of God himself from wherever you are from. It points in all directions. The gates of the city of God point toward you. Imagine that that is actually true for you. That the doors to the kingdom of God point towards you with your past, with your history, with your temperament, with your faults. That the gates of healing point towards you. But the city is not just described in some of these ethereal senses of of glorious, safe, or accessible. It's also described in a very personal sense, in a concrete sense, as a bride. If we go back to verse 9, the angel says, let me show you the bride of the Lamb. And it's a surprise that we see a city, but it's also surprising that it's, it's called a bride in the first place. It's a really special description when you think about it. It's a description that ties back to the people of God all throughout Scripture, that that God's people are called the bride of God, that they belong to Him in a special way. That's That's what it is most intimately to be a bride or a groom, is to belong to someone in a new and special relationship. And here God is saying, this people, this city belong to me, and I belong to them in an intimate and personal way. So to be in this city, to belong to God in the end, is to be His and to have Him be yours for you and Him for eternity to be together. To be close. To have nothing get in the way. Imagine a relationship like that. For he is always yours, and you are always his, and there is nothing that gets in the way. It's only the lamb, our text suggests, of which the city is the bride, that actually can make something like this possible. It's Christ who was the lamb that was slain, who has taken away all the guilt and all the separation of our sin, which made us instead not belong to God, but to belong to death. Christ breaks that belonging to something that breaks us through his brokenness, that in that we might rise to a new belonging in him, which is forever and free. That it's not by our earning, not by our doing. The bride is received, not because she is worthy, but because she is made beautiful. She is made to belong. Jesus is the one who makes you worthy of belonging to him, worthy of being a fitting partner. There is no sense in which this city that's described, this new reality, when you read it, you don't think, yeah, that doesn't really fit. Why would that go with Jesus? No, you think that does fit. It is radiating with the glory of God. It has the safety that God gives. It's accessible in the way God is accessible. It's glorious and wonderful. That's how God sees you because that's how God makes you. 
This is what you become like. The city is not just a, a picture of what will be and the structure of how God's kingdom is working, but also a metaphor in a sense of, of we as a people, all of us have these attributes that we become made a fitting partner for God. Somehow, by God's grace. That's Revelation's conviction, that this beauty is possible, and it's not possible because you have to do anything at all except believe that Jesus has done it all for you and you can't do it yourself. It's possible because of Christ's death, which had the appearance of death, but in the reality, the outcome was life. And I think in our third point here, the names on the city show us this truth in greater depth. If we look at verses 12 and 14, those verses mention that there were names written on the gates and the foundations of the city. And maybe a little bit surprisingly, when you hear about the new city of God coming down, you would expect to see the names on the gates or the foundations be something like Yahweh or Elohim, or Adonai, God's name. But God's name is not on God's city. The names written on the city are the names of the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes that came from them, and the 12 apostles. Do we see the, the surprise that God would name the foundations and the entrances the things which make possible the city standing up and the things which make possible it, your coming into the city, that those things which are so key, God names not after himself, but after his people. You would expect on God's city to see God's name, right? You, you expect in a city like ours to see important people's names on the buildings that they helped create, right? You don't often see like the name of their friend and they donated all this money, but I'm going to name it after my friend who meant so much to me, right? You see this wing is donated by this person who had a lot of money and wants you to know they had a lot of money. Uh, God doesn't do that. You would expect to see his name, but we don't see it. It certainly shines with his glory, but the names on it are the names of his people, which reminds us just how much God loves to include us in what he does. That in the beginning, God meant to include us, gave us the, the agency, as it were, in Genesis to go and create, to fulfill, to, to make the world and cultivate it, something beautiful, to have us be a part of what he was doing, not to have it all finished and just hand it to us, but invite us into the process. And here at the end of all things, you see God saying again, you are part of the process. You're special to me. God loves to elevate humanity. He loves to see us shine. He loves to put our name on what he has done. He loves to put your name on his best work. He loves to include you. But the second and probably deeper surprise is not just that we see God putting someone else's name on his building, but it's actually the names of the 12 sons of Israel that are on these gates. Now, yes, God made promises to Jacob, who is called Israel, and to his sons and to those who came after them, but to name the gates after those 12 men 
If you go back and read Genesis, these are not the best men. These are not guys that you really want to be friends with. They were a messed up, dysfunctional family. You might as well have named the gates dysfunction, disaster, train wreck, right? Like these would be the gates that you would walking into if you think about these people. Joseph was prideful. All of his brothers were slave traders. Judah was a degenerate. Simeon, uh, I'm sorry, Reuben was a weakling. Yet it's to these people that now having this kind of glory and honor belongs. For all their sinfulness and all their brokenness, they are now defined and radiating with the glory of God. Same thing for the 12 apostles who are the foundations. They used to be the disciples, not the most impressive bunch if you go through the Gospels. Bumbling at times. Peter abandons Jesus by denying that he ever knows him three times. They're all self-centered. They argue about which of them is the best. They extort money. Paul was a murderer. James and John were prone to vengeance and wanted to call down fire on people that wouldn't listen to Jesus. These are not people that get it. And yet it's to them that such glory belongs. What possibly happened to make these people deserve having their name on this building? The answer is they were changed. They were redeemed. Christ has changed them. The Lamb was slain for them that they might be changed and made new. Though this is who they were in Christ, it's no longer who they are. So in some sense, placing their names on the city is is not just a kindness to them, not just the humility of God and including others, but actually a monument to Jesus Christ as the redeemer of people like this. That it's on the gates of the city of God that are hanging the names of people that Jesus Christ has redeemed. The train wrecks, the dysfunction, the messed up people. Like the banners of, of conquered kings you could think about on a king's castle, the city gates and foundations are covered with the banners of hard-hearted, stubborn, foolish, selfish, even violent people who by grace learn to know and love God. To display them is to make known, to celebrate the grace of God. To hide them would be to hide something of the sweetness of Christ's redemption. Part of the glory, then, that this city has that it shines with is through these names. It's through the redemption. Part of how we shine as Christians is not that we have never been these things. It's not that we can say, I've had this perfect track record or that that I've made up for it, that I've done penance, that I've done enough things to make up for who I was. No, the, the reality of the glory that we shine with, that this new reality shines with is saying, yes, that is who I was, but because of what Jesus did, because of what the cross means, because of the value of that, because of the unextinguishable depth of that, I no longer am who I was, and now this is who I am. That is part of the glory of Christianity, not a hiding, but an unveiling. Aren't we prone to hide? I know I am. Aren't you prone to hide the ways that you have not been who you've wanted to be? God in His new kingdom 
engraves it on the walls of the city as a monument to the fact that these things do not own you anymore. Do you know a God like that? Who turns your shame into glory like he did with those 12 messed up sons of Israel, like those 12 bumbling disciples who doesn't have to hide you. You know a God like that? A God who is actually proudly displaying your name with all of your history attached to it, actually more proud for your history attached to it, not because that was right, but because he makes you new because these things show him to be an even greater and kinder savior than we might expect. That's what these names say. We were once lost, but now we belong to Christ. Now we shine in him, not despite our darkness, but actually through it. This is the glory that we have in Christ. This is the glory that the city shines with is redemption. That is part of the glory of the Christian life is us shining through. This is who I was. It's not who I am now. I don't have to hide these things anymore. That's what we get to live into. And so to, to encourage us to help us live into this in some practical ways, I wanted to give us just three things as we uh, prepare to wrap up today to, to remember, to name, and display. To first remember, I want to encourage you in living into this hope and this future that is yours if you are a Christian, to remember this city as you go throughout your week this week. That the promise of it means that whatever you see this week, that the appearances that are in front of you do not determine outcomes. If you need to write that down, if you want to put it as a note in your phone, make it your new home screen, whatever, remind yourself that appearances in God's kingdom do not determine outcomes. God determines outcomes for you. Remember that. Second, to name where, I want to ask you, like God, is there a place you could put someone's name on something good? All of our culture, it feels like, is bent around putting our name on something good, making our mark, having our, our reputation, whatever it may be. But there's not too much that would lend itself to putting someone else's name on something that is good, on letting ourselves get out of the way. We're, we're as, as kids, as parents, as siblings, as friends, where could you let others get more credit than they might get? Where could you even be generous in putting their name on something to some extent, you might say, that they might not otherwise have a right to? Where you could see them and value them in that way? Where can you speak well of someone in front of others? Where can you give someone a good name, even someone that you may not like all that well, someone that may not be agreeable to you? Where do you need to see the brokenness of others, not as, not as a dead end in your life, but just as a future home of grace? All right, well, what's the relationship that feels like a dead end in your life right now? How is God calling you to see that not as a dead end, but just as a future home of grace?
Where can we put a name of grace on someone in our lives, on some relationship in our lives? Let's name each other with grace. Let's be agents of the redemption that we do have in Jesus now. And finally, display. Let God display your redemption. He is not hiding it here. He does not hide the fact that these are the same people that went so deeply wrong in Genesis. He doesn't hide that. He puts it on the gates. He doesn't hide the fact that these disciples were not the best of the best. That's, that's actually why he chose them, because they were the vessels to show his grace. Do we hide the fact that Jesus has redeemed us? Do we feel like we have to show one another here our best Christian face when we come to church on Sunday, when we're in small groups, when we're hanging out, when we find each other at other times during the week, or do we ever let our guard down to put on the walls the fact that Jesus has redeemed us? Are you willing to display in the same way that God desires to display the fact that he has redeemed you? What would it be like if we could become a church like that? where you could walk in these doors and somehow know that this is a place where you could have problems and that's not the end. That's not the end of relationship. That's not the end of your story. But there is something more coming to your story. What if it really was okay to have brokenness in your life here? What if it really was a place where you could find grace? Where it really felt like the gospel was more powerful than your past? What would it look like this year if in the same way that we are getting renovation done to the structure of our building and we're going to see that restoration happening more and more, what if we displayed our inner restoration? What if we were just as eager to see that happen? What if it was just as important that that happened? How might we do that together? What, how, how can we dream about that together? Talk about that with each other in your, in your, in your small groups, in your, in your friend groups, in your families, whatever it is. How might we do that together? What would it look like to be a place where redemption is really hanging on the wall, so to speak? Where we can know that this is a place where you can come in and find grace because God is not ashamed to redeem you. So we shouldn't be ashamed to show our redemption. Let's pray. I'd like to offer us a little, little time to respond in our hearts to what we've heard throughout the service, through the songs, or through the sermon. I encourage you to think about just thanking God that, that He is bigger than our appearances. That the way things appear right now does not determine their outcome. Maybe confess the ways that, that we haven't been gracious to others, like God has been gracious to us, that we... We haven't been particularly eager to put their name on things, to let them shine. And maybe ask God to, to make you live into redemption in a new way, to shine with it, to, to show it off, to celebrate it as if it really is glorious and good. Let's take a minute and pray.
God, we thank you that this is the future that you hold out for us, that this is certain, that this is coming, that this is our home, and that we belong to you even now. Would you anchor that hope into our hearts, Holy Spirit? Bring that belonging home now. In your name we pray. Amen.